you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3 and live streaming this Friday on Instagram at LAist Official. Austin Cross with you. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Coming up in about 20 minutes, we will connect with our public radio sister station in Miami to reflect on last night's debate between California Governor Newsom, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. I don't know if you caught that, but when we do that, I would love for you to call in and share what you want people in Florida to know about your life in California, the joys, the struggles, especially if you've maybe come here from Florida. That is coming up a little bit later on in our show. It's also Food Friday, I should mention. We're going to chow down on some Cubanos from an Angelino who, funny enough, came here from Miami. Stay tuned for that. But we start this hour with the death of former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor at the age of 93. When she was appointed by President Ronald Reagan in 1981, she became the first woman on the Supreme Court where she served until her retirement in 2006. With us to talk about her life and career is Deborah Jones Merritt, Distinguished University Professor Emerita at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law and former law clerk for Sandra Day O'Connor. Professor, thank you so much for coming on today. I'm happy to be here. It's a sad day, but I'm glad to talk about Justice O'Connor. Well, just to start, could you please share your thoughts on the life of the former justice? <laughs> She led such a full and impactful life. When you think about all the places she went, the positions she held, the things that she fought for, um, we don't even think often about the fact that she made many overseas trips trying to bring the rule of law to other countries. So to think about her from being a young girl on a ranch in far Eastern Arizona um, to being on the Supreme Court of the United States in Washington, D.C., couldn't be more different, and then spreading her message around the world. She was a phenomenal person. I was so fascinated to learn that this morning. This was a part of her life that I had no idea about, about growing up on that ranch um, and then going to Stanford at age 16. She was one of four women in her class. Can you tell us a little bit about what you know about how she got to the Supreme Court, her her legal journey? Because similar to uh, former Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I understand she had a lot of trouble getting hired after she left law school. Oh, she did. And I know this, of course, only from her stories, but I believe that the only position she was offered was as a legal secretary. And then she turned that down. Uh, I believe she may have volunteered at first as a um, prosecutor and then was eventually hired on, but it was hard to get any sort of legal position. What was interesting about her path is that it not only had that kind of challenges for her to overcome, but it did lead her through all three branches of government because she worked in the uh, as a prosecutor in the executive branch. She then ran for and was a very important member of the Arizona legislature. 
and then, of course, was appointed to a state court um, in Arizona before her appointment to the Supreme Court. So I have no idea what other candidates were presented to President Reagan, what sort of um, dossiers he had to look at. But I would think that her dossier must have been very attractive because of that background. Um, and also bringing the geographic um, you know, perspective to the court. Mm. We don't really want a court that's all people from the Northeast. Um, right. We are a large country with lots of perspectives. The other thing I have heard about, again, I've only heard this from her, is that when a team from Washington came out to Arizona to for an initial vetting of her uh, before go, reporting back to President Reagan, uh, she whipped them up a you know very elegant lunch mm. of uh, Mexican food <laughs> and impressed all of her interviewers. She she would cook for us as clerks sometimes too. Wow. I mean, it's so fascinating. One of the things that I uh, had read about her is that her first experience in a man's world was uh, working with the cattle drivers on this ranch in Arizona when she was much younger. Uh, I want to remind people that we're talking right now about the life of retired Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who died today in Phoenix, Arizona, talking about her with Deborah Jones Merritt, distinguished university professor at the Moritz College of Law at Ohio State University, also former law clerk for Sandra Day O'Connor. I want to look at some of the small criticisms that I've read of the justice or just observations, I guess I should say, because though former President Reagan appointed her as a conservative, she wouldn't really qualify as being a member of the right flank on today's court. Uh, how, how do we see that or do you see that from her time in court and from the opinions that she authored? First of all, it's a it's a type of movement that many justices have made over time. Um, justice and then Chief Justice Rehnquist was appointed as a conservative, and he remained quite conservative for a longer period of time, but ultimately changed his views on some important issues. He ultimately, for example, um, endorsed, and this was at, this was on into after um, Justice Ginsburg joined the court. He ultimately came to support some women's rights under the Constitution. So a lot of justices evolve over time. In her case, I think it was as much that she always looked very carefully at the facts of each individual case. So it wasn't as if she would come to a case and say, well, I'm a conservative and here's the conservative view on the case. That wasn't the way she operated at all. She really dug into all of the facts of the case, the law of the case. The, she, she wanted us to bring her law review articles um, on cases that were important before the court. So she really thought very deeply about every case. And when you think deeply, you see nuances. And once you see nuances, you may come up with a pattern of decisions that don't fall naturally into mm. conservative or liberal. And that's really the best of judging under our system in the United States. It's what I would hope that actually all of the justices would do. I remember seeing one law professor say that each one of her decisions is a ticket for one train only. I think that helps kind of capture the the narrow nature of some of the opinions that she wrote. Well, with just well, about, that, or, or not, not really... your opinion. Sorry. <laughs> oh, please. No, you're welcome to disagree. I was going to say, I think her opinions were not nearly that narrow. I think people who disliked where she came out often would say that. Mm. But 
the best of constitutional jurisprudence follows what we think of as the common law tradition in the United States and other countries, which is deciding cases case by case, that we don't make broad pronouncements. It's broad pronouncements that polarize people. And I think especially in the political situation we're in today, more case by case <laughs> discussion would really benefit us politically. Well, just about a minute left, Professor. I'm curious, in your opinion, what her appointment meant for you know other women in the law profession. Obviously, she was the first. She wasn't the last. What stands out to you when you think about that? Oh, it, it was huge. And not just for women who were already lawyers or not even just for women. There were so much. I clerked for her during her very first term. And there was so much mail from people around the United States that either she or the court, I don't know who paid for this extra secretary, had to hire a full-time secretary just to help with that type of mail, wow, wow. not with things related to the court's business. And she tried to accept as many invitations as she could, not just that first year, but every year of her time on the court, because she knew that what she had achieved was so important to other women, to other men who supported women and wanted their women to achieve. So she had a remarkable impact. You know, I got just about one minute left added to this conversation. So with the time that we have, I want to squeeze in one controversial uh, ruling, uh, obviously looking at uh, Bush v. Gore case, uh, Supreme Court settled the outcome of that in the uh, 2000 presidential election. Did you hear much from her afterwards about her thoughts about the court's role in that decision? I didn't. And I made it a habit not to ask her about internal mm. thinking about the court's decisions. I have a sense, though, from what she said publicly afterwards, that for her, this was, again, a situation of taking the full context into account. I think she was very troubled by the continued unrest after the election and that the election wasn't settled. I don't think she was influenced by the fact that Bush was the Republican candidate. I think she was influenced by the sense that for democracy to function, the waters had to settle. She might ultimately have come to change her mind on that, looking back at that month. Mm -hmm. But um, that, I think, was her motivation at the time, to the extent that you know feelings behind the law provoke what you do. Um, but there was a legal basis for the opinion. I personally agreed with um, Justice Ginsburg, uh, who I had also clerked for in that case, rather mm. than Justice O'Connor. But, you know, they both made reasoned legal arguments. That's Deborah Jones Merritt, Distinguished University Professor Emerita at The Ohio State University, Moritz College of Law and former law clerk for Sandra Day O'Connor. Professor, thank you so much for making the time today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, you are listening to Air Talk here on LAist 89.3 and live streaming on Instagram at LAist official Austin Cross with you. You know, we've talked a lot on this show about these seemingly endless concerns about artificial intelligence. And one of the biggest concerns, especially in our industry, is how this technology will affect journalists writing. Will there even be a need for human writers down the road? 
Welp, as they say, the plot thickens. Sports Illustrated has allegedly used AI-generated writers to publish some of its content. That's according to some sources who were involved. Maggie Harrison has been writing about this for the science and tech news publication Futurism. She joins me now. Maggie, thank you so much for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. Just to start off, how did you catch wind that this was actually happening? That's a very good question. We have been working on this for several weeks now. It started a, a few weeks ago, to put it very simply. Uh, writers at Reviewed, which is a USA Today affiliate site where, you know, you're publishing. It's humans who are reviewing uh, various consumer pro products. They're testing them out, trying them out, um, doing their own research and, you know, giving or consumers buying guides for, you know, various, yeah, various goods. Writers at that website came out against their owning body, Gannett, which is a major newspaper publisher in America, and said that we are accusing our owner of publishing very bad AI-generated articles that were also penned by these, or just published under these very, I, I hesitate to even like say that they were written by, um, <laughs> but published under these bylines belonging to um, fake people, fake profiles mm. with, uh, you know, very specific bios. And, you know, we, we've been covering a futurism um, since, you know, CNET broke back in January. We've been covering a lot of AI-generated journalism efforts, but, you know, the use of these fake profiles was particularly strange. And so from that reporting, we followed, we just kind of followed some digital threads until we stumbled across the content at Sports Illustrated. And, you know, I, I want to be clear, we were looking for it. If I was an average consumer, I don't think I would have thought this isn't very good, but I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> this is probably created by a fake person. I uh, and what the content that we found at Sports Illustrated had a kind of all the all the signs of exactly what we were looking for. I mean, how I would describe it is things generated by AI often have this no duh quality to them. I want to uh, point out one of the articles that was shared with me by our producer, uh, the best fishing baits to up your fishing game. And the first sentence is whether you're using an artificial lure or a live bait, you'll need some way to get a fish's attention. While they aren't as smart as other creatures, they won't just chomp on your hook either. I mean, you read that and you think, oh, really? Really? Uh, Drew Ortiz? Uh, and then you click and you see his photo and his bio, and it's pretty suspicious now, isn't it? It is. And I, I do want to say, you know, there's a volleyball article written by Ortiz as well that has made the rounds, rightfully so, because it was similarly just, you know, it, it just says nothing at all while also speaking in these very strange ways. <laughs> it, it's very alien. Like an alien is trying to explain fish and fishing bait or volleyball and has all this access to information about volleyball, but like doesn't actually understand being in a physical body and doesn't even know what a sport is, you know? <laughs> um, and the fishing, I must say, the fishing bait where he says that fish are kind of dumb is my personal favorite wow. of um, all the Jurati's articles. But yeah, once we made, so yeah, like, like you said, the content itself is just bizarre. It's just very weird. And then we take a look at the and we, we found several, we found several, and it was a very strange practice of having a fake author, scrubbing that fake author, reattributing all their pieces to a new fake author, mm. really strange business practices on behalf of the arena group, which is, you know, Sports Illustrated's owner. Um, but yeah, you know, we, we look at, we look closer at the, the actual profiles, the fake profiles, and we were able to trace them back pretty easily to a website where they sell in, in their entire, you know, business model is selling AI generated faces to people. Mm -hmm. So you know, their faces are not, it's not even like a stock image. It's a completely fabricated person. And then the bios themselves are strange in a sense of this. Again, it's this thing of like, you're saying a lot, like it's Georgie's <laughs> grew up in the woods and he can protect you from the perils of nature, I think is the actual quote. 
Um, wow. And it, it gives you all this background about Jurtis and why he's good at selling you things like fishing baits and camping gear and various outdoor sports, you know, supplies. But there's no real substance to it. It, it says a lot, but then it's not, you know, where is his fake farm that he grew up on? Or where is you know, does he have a publishing history? What is his educational background? What else does he write about? So a, a lot of strange language and all around. Yeah, I mean, the, the other one, uh, Sora Tanaka was a personality. And you also found that picture uh, on an AI headshot marketplace, which I should just say, like, the headshots aren't even very good. I would describe them as soulless a little bit. There's just yeah. something off. There's just something missing from these faces. Absolutely. Uh, but her bio says that she's uh, been a fitness guru and likes to try different food and drinks. Uh, so, I mean, also some flags there. Um, talk to me about the concerns overall. I mean, uh, Sports Illustrated has responded to this. Uh, the union uh, for Sports Illustrated has responded to this. Overall, what is tell us the tension here because obviously there's a fear that AI could take our jobs, but also they just don't seem very good at our jobs either. Yeah, I think that's a very fair way to put it. You know, the technology is just not quite there yet. I think is what we're saying. Um, I think that a lot of newsrooms are. It was, I guess the way I'll frame it is that with a technology this powerful and this transformational. I think that we'll continue to see a lot of newsrooms and just people in every industry start to experiment with it. But so far in journalism specifically, and there have been some, you know, there have been some organizations that have toyed with the idea of how do they make their own proprietary model using their own copyrighted information? And maybe they use that for like gamified content. Or I think that there's ways that people are starting to consider how we could use this in a capacity that's not necessarily reporting, that's not necessarily generated generating like mass amounts of content. But so far what we've seen has been not particularly great. So mm -hmm. I, I would say that, you know, like, again, with, you know, describing how like fish, you might not think that a fish would chomp on the bit or, it, you know, it's, it's, it's very this strange language that, yeah, it's not particularly good. The technology isn't there to the degree that we can just publish this on mass um, in a way that's convincing or not necessarily convincing, but like does write by readers or by writers. Right. I think the broader sense too is that this is Sports Illustrated. This is not a spam site. This is not a synthetic spam site that's just churning out, you know, mass amounts of AI-generated content. And you know, we wouldn't expect great things from a spam site like that. But Sports Illustrated to see it there at this venerated magazine that is, you know, one of the most iconic pieces of American literature. You know, one of the most iconic magazines in American history. That seems like a very sharp fall <laughs> from, you know, having William Faulkner and John F. Kennedy publish in your pages to having Drew Ortiz talk about how volleyball, to play volleyball, you need a volleyball is, is a very <laughs> sharp slide. <to> <laughs> and so I think, yeah. And I think the broader sense too. So like, of, of course, there's fears in the journalism industry of, you know, it, it's tough waters for everybody. And I think everybody's rightfully nervous that they'll be replaced. Um, at the same time, there is that reader sense too, that I find is really striking where the idea that this is, I don't know, to toy with this in a way that to publish this is to me is not okay. You know, you're you're misleading people directly. And that to me is like the broader concern of like, I don't, it, it troubles me to see this kind of material normalized within the pages of something like Sports Illustrated. That's Maggie Harrison. She's a staff writer for Futurism. Her latest reporting looks at Sports Illustrated and their alleged use of AI generated writers. I should also mention that we reach out to Sports Illustrated as well as the Arena Group, but we did not receive a response back. 
When we come back, we are going to talk about the debate last night between California Governor Gavin Newsom, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. We are going to connect with our sister station in Miami, and we will want to hear from you about what you want people in the other state to know. 866-893-5722 is our number. Back in just a minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. I'm Tom Hudson, and I want to welcome listeners of LAist 89.3 in Southern California to the Florida Roundup here in the Sunshine State. We're simulcasting this part of our program in Florida, the Florida Roundup, with LAist's daily news program, Air Talk. We're live in Los Angeles. We're grateful to be along with them and host Austin Cross. Hello, Austin. Great to be along with you. Hi, Tom. It's so great to be with you. For the next few minutes, we're going to have a cross-country conversation in light of last night's debate on Fox between Governors Newsom and DeSantis. And as you folks in Florida have already been talking about, yeah, it was a raucous night, downright messy at times. But in between the scuffles, the governors were able to contrast their policies. So what we want to do today is talk about not the men on the stage, but the issues themselves and how they affect the lives of people living in California and Florida. So what do you want each other to know about your life? Have you maybe moved or lived in both states? Californians, if uh, you used to live in Florida, we would love to hear from you. Floridians, if you used to live in California, we would love to hear from you too. We're talking about cost of living, affordability of housing education. What would you like to share today? What can you learn from each other? Our number here for Southern California listeners, 866-893-5722. I'll give that one more time, 866-893-5722. Yeah, and if you're in Florida, the uh, phone number is 305-995-1800, 305-995-1800. The economy, Austin, education, the environment, the environment, right? How- housing affordability is something we share. The insurance issue when it comes right. to property is, uh, you know, uh, natural disasters and catastrophes, something also these two Sunbelt states share. So how do you think your state is doing? Uh, uh, I put it this way earlier, Austin, Disney World or Disneyland? Right? <laughs> How about that? I like that. Uh, 866-893-5722 again for our Southern California listeners. You know, Tom, as I watched the debate last night, uh, in the first few minutes, arguably not much of a debate, more of a you know scuffle. But 
I couldn't help but wonder if debates like these are really the best way for candidates to discuss issues that matter in the lives of everyday people because there's so much focus on sound bites, the back and forth, scoring points, and ultimately each person dismissing their opponent's claims as lies. Um, as the calls come in, Tom, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think there was a lot of uh, policy talked about, but of course it was overshadowed last night by the personalities involved. I think that is uh, is certainly obvious to anyone who witnessed it and knows these two individuals as big personalities and big po politicians with significant ambitions. Uh, I do think, though, that it's also an opportunity uh, that can't be passed up because it is a way for voters to be able to hear from candidates in a way that they don't always hear from candidates. Now they try to engage with one another. I do think that you know a a conversation like the one held last night is best without a live audience. Right. We've seen that with the debates. It's best with fewer candidates, so we can have a longer time discussing some more substantive issues. And I think always, uh, you know, I don't, Fox News didn't always accomplish this necessarily, but to be grounded, moored with facts, right? To be that's where we want to push off from here. Of course, and just to tack onto your audience point, could you even imagine so much talking over each other at the beginning? If an audience was added into that fray as well, Tom, that would be <laughs> uh, so challenging. I understand that you might have a caller on the line, Tom. In fact, we do. Yeah, Katie has been listening into our conversation from Sunny Isles, Florida. Katie. Welcome to our programs. Uh, you uh, were a Californian and now you're a Floridian. Yes, I am actually in Clay County, Florida, which is like a little bit underneath the Florida Georgia line. Mm -hmm. I, it's like a very Florida place to be. And I used to live in a very California place to be. I was born in Los Angeles County, California. You were. And so, like, yeah, I'm 29 years old and I moved when I was 14. So I feel like I have the best perspective so that's why i called i listen to npr all the time um so i was like okay i feel like this is my calling so uh <laughs> the difference between states is lifestyle these two governors can't even be like compared because they just have two completely different situations in front of them they can't be judged by the state that they have because the state that they have was there before they got there First of all, I just also want like everyone to hear that and know that and appreciate that. Katie, like, given your given your unique perspective, uh, you know, what what do you make about the lifestyle differences, uh, about the uh, uh, opportunity differences uh, that you have experienced in California and Florida? So, my family was like solid middle class in California and solid middle class in Florida and. I'll say, like, there's just so many more poor people, like, on the streets out there in so many more cities. So out mm. here, if you're in, like, Jacksonville, you'll see the exact same thing that you'll see in Los Angeles. First of all, I also want to say that. Jacksonville is growing exponentially. It's the fastest-growing, like, place. I don't even yeah. know if that's true, but maybe other than my Miami, right? Like, maybe in Florida. I don't know. But it is littered with homeless people in a couple more areas than florida but that i don't again that's not really newsom's fault that's just like it's been that way uh, katie it's austin cross uh, from los angeles Developing. 
Uh, and, and thank you so much for calling and sharing your perspective. It's really valuable considering that you did live here. I, mean, I guess I have a two-part question. It's one, when you think back on your time living here, uh, how do you feel about it? Do you remember it in a positive way? But then my other half to that is, if given the opportunity, would you maybe consider moving back? And if so, why or why not? Um, no, I wouldn't move back. And it's because it takes forever to build anything out there. Anything, absolutely anything. So when I was a child, there was, a Taco Bell Target situation that started getting built when I was like six. It was still getting built when I left. Now, the first year that I moved here, I moved into a developing community, and the very next year, we had like three like little communities and like a whole shopping center, and I was like floored. I was like, I didn't know people could build this ass. I didn't know it was possible. So... Yeah. yeah, yeah. One of the many differences uh, about development, uh, certainly between California and Florida. Katie uh, calling us from Sunny Isles, Florida. Katie, thanks so much for joining us here on our simulcast. Really appreciate it. And for folks just joining us here, this is LAS 89.3, but we are also joined with our sister station in uh, Miami, and we are talking about the debate last night between California Governor Gavin Newsom and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. For folks li- listening in in Southern California, if there's something that you want your cross-country compatriots to know about your life here, you just heard Katie's call. Katie used to live in Los Angeles. If you'd like to share your perspective, we have a line open for you at 866 I'll give that again, 866-893-5722. You can also shoot us an email at atcomments at laist.com. Just be sure to include your first name and location. Austin Katie uh, had talked about uh, the growth of, of Jacksonville, which is the largest city in the state of Florida. It's bigger than the city of Miami, for instance. And it was the uh, sixth fastest, uh, sixth largest growing city between mm. 2021 and 2022 in Jacksonville. So it certainly has been growing uh, pretty fast there in Northeast Florida. Caitlin has been uh, listening in from the Gulf Coast in Sarasota, Florida. Caitlin, thanks for your patience. You're on the radio. Uh, thank you. Um, I didn't get to listen to the debate yet. I am looking forward to it. That's actually why I tuned in this morning. Um, but I just wanted to remind everyone in Florida that during COVID, during the pandemic, we were the freest state in this whole country. And I enjoyed that. My friends and relatives enjoyed that. Coming to visit me, they said they felt like they were leaving communist China and coming to the real America. So, And you moved to Florida. You moved to Florida early in the pandemic. Is that right, Caitlin? Where did you uh, move from? Um, I didn't move during the pandemic. I moved to Florida in 2019, Ah. like January 2019. Gotcha. Before. Well, great. Caitlin, thanks for listening and sharing your story uh, from Sarasota. Austin, you know, that, that has been a real uh, uh, centerpiece of Governor DeSantis' presidential uh, campaign when talking about uh, Florida and how he managed COVID-19 and the pandemic. And that, of course, is one of those policy points of contention between uh, uh, Governor DeSantis and uh, Governor Newsom that was on display last night during that Fox News event. Right. It certainly uh, came up last night. I think that uh, Newsom didn't really get a lot of words out about it because, uh, you know, I think that uh, Ron DeSantis took some issue uh, with how it was being characterized, just how mm-hmm. long any level of lockdowns lasted. Because I understand, uh, so restaurants, I believe, were at half capacity, and it was at bars were closed for a short period of time at the beginning of COVID. Was that what was happening in Florida at the, the start of 2020? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. There was there was definitely a point where the economy shut down, and Florida, being a very hospitality driven economy, it uh, it had some significant repercussions, and arguably it, it drove the governor uh, to. Uh, really be uh, one of the first, if not the first, to move forward toward reopening commerce because of the hospitality-centered economy that we have here in Florida. I want to give out our number one more time for listeners in Southern California, 866-893-5722 is our number. If you happen to catch last night's debate between California Governor Newsom, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and if there's something that you want uh, the people in Florida right now to know we are doing a simulcast. We are connecting with Florida right now. If there's something that you would like for them to know about your life, especially maybe if you moved here from Florida, if you've lived in Florida for any amount of time, 866-893-5722 is our number. I understand you might have another caller on the line, Tom. Yep, Betsy has been listening in. Uh, go ahead, Betsy. You're on the radio. Thanks for calling. Hi, yes. I've lived in Florida for about 30 years now, and I am in Oviedo which is on what's called the I-4 corridor, very highly populated. And I'd just like to correct a misconception that folks outside of Florida might have about the lockdowns. Um, schools here absolutely were closed during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Public schools were closed. This had a huge impact on both of my sons. And when uh, the pandemic lockdowns are mentioned, I feel like schools are, are not talked about very much or it's implied that somehow schools in Florida stayed open. That's absolutely not the case. So just wanted to put that out there. Other institutions, it was very much hit or miss. But as far as coming here and feeling very free, no. We absolutely were subjected to masks and many other restrictions that businesses. Um, it was up to some businesses to decide whether or not they would do that. Um, furthermore, I'd like to talk a little bit about the housing costs of living here. Mm. Uh, the home insurance crisis is, of course, well known to many listeners here that know secret about that, but it's hugely increased in just the past couple of years. I myself have suffered a $900 increase mm. uh, with no end in sight to that. That's on top of my, yeah. my taxes going up for my home as well. So that's a, a burning crisis here, which our, our governor has done uh, little to nothing to address. And many of us understand that that's not entirely within the purview of state governments, but absolutely there are levers that can be thrown, and to date nothing has been done about that. Yeah. Uh, Betsy, I appreciate you bringing that uh, topic to light here. Uh, Austin, it's something that the two states actually do have in common. The high cost of housing, certainly. George sent us this email from Margate, uh, which is between Fort Lauderdale and Palm Beach. He says that uh, our maintenance has been raised four times as a condominium owner. He pays $505 for a one-bedroom, one-bath. Uh, George writes, my cousin has a two-bed, two-bath in a very trendy neighborhood in Hollywood, California, mm. and his cousin pays $500 for his maintenance, $5 less, but that includes a private two-car garage with a washer-dryer. I have none of that, among other advantages. Uh, George writes from uh, Margate, Florida. You know, I'll also say anecdotally, I've just heard from people that uh, the prices in Florida, the cost of living, of course, increased uh, because of people coming to Florida as well. I, that's something to uh, consider. Jeff is giving us a call from Long Beach. I want to put out our number one more time, 866-893-5722 for the folks in Southern California. If you'd like to weigh in on this conversation, the uh, debate last night between California Governor uh, Newsom and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, Jeff, I understand that you lived in Florida for 14 years. Looks like you're now in Long Beach. Yes, sir. And so I tell us about your experiences. I'm sorry, Jeff. Say that one more time for us. Yeah. Yes, sir. Um, in Florida for about 14 years, in Long Beach now for about 10. 
So, Jeff, tell us your thoughts, the, maybe uh, what you're thinking at this point. Yeah, I think, you know, both states have incredible positives to them. I mean, it's a lifestyle choice. They also have some downsides. Um, you know, living in Florida, certainly the poverty there is, is just as great, if not greater. Um, there is great disparity in incomes. Um, coming to California, certainly it is more expensive, but we do actually make more money uh, in general. And so I would say that there isn't one state that's better than the other. Um, I think they both have incredible positives to them. The Jeff, lifestyle being number one. Jeff, I'm curious. Uh, you did live in Florida. You're now in Long Beach. Has there been any thought as you start to weigh those lifestyles uh, as to whether or not you'd consider going back to Florida at some point? That's really interesting. I actually had an opportunity a couple of years ago, and I think for me, um, being able to live in California and being outdoors 12 months of the year and not having to live in air conditioning all the time, <laughs> strangely enough, is, is again a choice because I remember those summers in Florida, they were brutal. And so you couldn't necessarily spend uh. all of your time outside. So, And the fact that we have mountains and desert and, you know, there's just so many things that you can do in California. It was a choice for me to stay here and not go back to Florida. That's Jeff in Long Beach, uh, 866-893-5722 is our number here. Tom, I'm hearing you laughing over there. Austin, I'll, I'll, I'll give Jeff, I'll give you and, uh, and California the topographical advantage. There's no doubt about it. Uh, you know, when we're 12 or 13 feet above sea level, that's a high elevation for us, at least in South Florida. But I think Jeff's bigger point is a really interesting one, right? And it is that both states have significant advantages, natural advantages and advantages of the people who are lucky right. enough to call either state home. And the framing of all of this really is kind of troubling to me that somehow there's a rivalry between California and Florida, that somehow one state can only win if the other state somehow loses. And that's just not, we're just not a zero sum game, United States, right? Uh, I mean, each state has advantages, each state has troubles, and they, and they share in both of those aspects. And that's kind of the framing of this and how this kind of rivalry has played out is is just a, a little sour to me, at least. You know, honestly, I see the oversimplification. I also see this uh, fueling more polarization because it kind of exacerbates yeah. uh, divisions. Yeah. Uh, there's context, of course, it's very important. Um, and just a very limited scope. I would actually hope in the future, if we wanted to have conversations like these between, uh, say, governors, uh, maybe be a little bit more long form. Maybe be, uh, microphones would be turned off and maybe there'd be an opportunity uh, for people to actually speak in depth. And I know that it's not as, you know, hip. It's not as uh, it's not as sexy sometimes because it's not moving as fast. But it's really the information about the issues that matters to people. I'm hearing from my producers that it might be time for us to say uh, goodbye Tom, yeah. but I just want to tell you uh, how much I've really enjoyed this connection, um, this special collaboration. I feel democracy stays strong when we keep talking to each other. Got to have those conversations, Austin. Big thanks to you, your entire crew at LAS, and of course your listeners for allowing us to have this really important time together. So have a terrific weekend. Take care, Tom. This is LAist 89.3. I'm Austin Cross. Thank you so much for joining us for that portion of the show. We've never done anything like that before, but it was certainly exciting connecting with Florida there. And thank you to everybody who gave us a call. You know, it's Friday. It is Food Friday. And y'all know what that means. Coming up, uh, we're going to talk about a sandwich that our friends in Miami actually know well. It's the Cubano. We're going to talk with Chef Paolo 
Andino, a Miami native who moved here to California. We might have brought him in to talk in this conversation. Uh, he's now slinging Cubanos and cookies. Oh, my goodness. Cookies at farmer's markets here in Southern California. If you want to get a glimpse of those Cubanos, I'm going to be uh, noshing a little bit quietly, not into the microphone, but noshing. Uh, Instagram, LAist Official. We are live streaming right now. If you want to take a peek inside the studio, now might be the time so you can see these good-looking sandwiches. We are back in 90 seconds on AirTalk. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, the Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk here on LAS 89.3. Austin Cross with you. Also live streaming right now on Instagram at LAist Official, where it is a food Friday. So if you want to see these Cubanos I'm about to chow down on, uh, that's the place to be. I also want to thank you, though, uh, for joining us for that last segment. It was so uh, exhilarating to connect with Florida and to have a conversation uh, in this country. As I said, democracy stays strong when we keep talking. So thanks so much for taking part in that, even if you didn't call in. Thanks so much for listening for that. Well, think about it. Is there any sandwich more exquisite than a perfectly balanced sandwich, one with maybe a perfect proportion of bread to filling with fat, salt, acid singing in sweet harmony. Today, I mentioned we're talking about the all-star sandwich, the Cubano, and joining us to dig into where it comes from, what is in it, and what makes it so darn great, Paolo Andino, the chef and owner of El Sandwich, and that is S-A-N-D-W-I-S-H, so I hope I'm pronouncing that, El Sandwich Cubano, uh, which you can find at the West Hollywood, Westwood, Marina Del Rey, downtown LA Farmers Markets. Paolo, thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure to be here. <laughs> oh, I am so too. beyond excited. <laughs> <laughs> I am loving I this. I never miss a show. You don't. Uh, no, <laughs> I'm like dying right now. <laughs> what an incredible connection. You go from listening to actually being here in the studio right I now. I mean, and when you started the Food Friday thing, I was like, I have to get my sandwiches on that show. It's the Cuban grandmother pronunciation, by the way. Sandwich, El sandwich cubano. El sandwich cubano. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm going to try to get that right every time I reestablish this conversation. Yes, yes. You know, in the farmer's market, everybody has to have like a cute little quirky name. You know right, I mean? right, right. Like, what the fudge? Oh, or, right. <laughs> Don't right. Touch My Cookies is the other company I have. Being on radio, my heart stopped when you started describing that fudge company for just a second. It's like, where's the dump? <laughs> we have a dump button here just in case these things happen. One time somebody actually tried to explain to us what an AMF was, um, and that wasn't uh, super oh. great. That was about four years ago when I first started doing this. Uh, let's bring it back to the uh, yes. Cubano, uh, Cubanos. Um, 
what is in one? Because I'm sure a lot of people have had one. Just tell us what makes a traditional one, though. So a traditional Cuban is ham, roast pork, Swiss cheese, pickles, and mustard, and okay. there and it's on Cuban bread. But um, there is a lot about like how there's even like things about how the the items are layered in the sandwich, which I really don't subscribe to that because I do it for my own cooking purposes because when I put them on the grill, I want to have the pork and the ham in the middle so I could open it up, mm. sort of butterfly it, get a little sizzle on the meat, and then close it up, and then I put a little compound butter on there. A lot of people ah. just put butter, but I mix some of the um, uh, rendered pork and butter with oh. a little garlic, and then I put that on the bread. So, and I put a little extra on the tip so that last bite that you get is like butterier and garlickier and porkier, more delicious. There's some real thought going into the creation of the Absolutely, right oh. yeah. And what I'm also hearing from you, though, is uh, when you start mentioning, uh, you know, mayo and things like that, I'm thinking like vinegars, so you get like the acidics, and they're mm -hmm. mixing with, and then like ham, which is brined. Um, yeah, and then it's mixing yeah. with the cheese, which you said it was Swiss, yes. was it? And so in this, there's no mayo in, in, the, in the Cuban, but there's mustard. Mustard, so the mustard. Vinegary. Right. And it's like regular old yellow mustard. Nothing uh, fancy or anything. It gets, a it gets a little fancier as you move to the pan con lechon, which has my mother's homemade oh. mayonnaise in it and uh, arugula and caramelized onions and potato sticks. And that's just a sandwich that my family makes after the day after Christmas. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I should mention to folks, there are three sandwiches in front of me, and I've always realized that I spend so much more time actually talking about these things than chowing down on them. So I, I want to start with the traditional Cubano and everything yes. that you described on it. Um, and as I take a bite of this, mm -hmm. as I chew, because uh, I don't want to chew into the microphone, but I tell me talk. about how you find... <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, you can. Uh, we're enjoying that. Um, tell me about how you find the balance in those flavors, because it does have the vinegar, it does have the yeah. mustard. Uh, I imagine if you get the ratios off, it might be too tangy mm -hmm. or something like that. Well, you know, for me, it's all about uh, less is more. A lot of people are like, I want more pork. I want it to be like a pastrami sandwich or something. And that's not what this sandwich is. This sandwich is... Um, a pressed sandwich so there has to be just the right amount of ham like there's only like two slices of thinly sliced ham you don't want it to be too thick it changes the flavor wow. and then the right amount of roast pork a little bit of mustard and a slice of Swiss cheese and when you put all those things together nothing is like taking over but everything is sort mm. of just you want it to sort of meld together I mean, people are hearing me groaning. <laughs> I mean, rarely on Food Fridays do I take a second bite, and I'm like, I'm, just, I'm gonna let this guy talk. I'm My favorite is when bite. like Cuban people come to the come to the booth, and then they come back later, like 20 mm. minutes later, and they're like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> that is a real seal of approval." And they give me the thumbs up. Yeah. Oh my great. gosh, that's let great. me reset right now. We were talking about Cubano sandwiches. Uh, we're talking about it with Paolo Andino, the chef and owner of El Sandwich Cubano. Did mm -hmm. I get this right? Yes. <laughs> you can find it uh, at Farmer's Markets, West Hollywood, uh, 
Westwood Marina Del Rey, downtown LA, <laughs> farmers markets. We saw one comment on our Instagram lives says, uh, Paolo is awesome. Uh, they're, they're also signing off on these sandwiches right oh, now. Sweet. And um, my family's listening too, so I have a lot. Well, hello, Andino <laughs> family. Um, yes. So uh, that was stellar. That was your traditional one. Now, there's also yes. the uh, pan con lechon. Pan con lechon, which okay. basically just means bread and pork. So okay. we roast an entire pig for Christmas, and then there's so much leftover. This is one of the things that we do with it. And my sister Rebecca makes the best one. So talk to me about what's on this. I'm going to show it to the folks. So on that the is IG the lab. same pork and the same bread, but then the mayonnaise on it. It is a homemade mayonnaise, sort of like a lemon aioli. I think would be the closest thing. Um, oh. But my mom makes it, and uh, I put that on there. And then there's arugula, caramelized onions, and then we love to put potato sticks on things for crunch. P- potato sticks. Yeah. It's just wow. Is this Mama Andino's recipe right here? Well, or? Cubans put potato sticks in a lot of sandwiches. We put it in our fritas, which is the Cuban hamburger, and then we put it in this. But my mom's influence in that is the homemade mayonnaise. Mayonesa hecha en la casa. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. So as I take a bite of this one, I want you to talk to me a little bit about bread. I understand that finding actual traditional Cuban bread, a little bit hard in Los Angeles. It's impossible to get good Cuban bread. Even, like, mm. Porto's doesn't make <laughs> Cuban bread. <laughs> I mean, the sandwich needs a minute. Yay. I'm sorry. <laughs> I love it's it. It's your show now. <laughs> so it's really hard to find Cuban bread here. And I started making the bread, but then doing the cookies, doing the roasting the pork, which oh. is the star of the sandwich, and, you know, going to four markets a week. It was just mm. too much. So I couldn't do the bread. And, you know, in the future, I want to move to have, like, my own little spot somewhere right. in L.A. And I will be making the bread then. But uh, what I found was a bolillo, which is... Um, oh, yeah. It's sort of like a little sweet, and then when you put it on the grill, it gets that crisp on the outside. So it's sort of a cross between Cuban bread and a medianoche. Medianoche is the same exact sandwich as a Cuban sandwich, mm-hmm. but the bread is different. So it's it's sweeter and softer, so that when you come home, like after a night of partying, you have a medianoche. It means midnight. And, uh, and so it's like, I don't know, I guess sweeter and softer on your mouth or something. <laughs> but um, so this bread is sort of a cross between those two Cuban breads. Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah. If only I could come home after partying at midnight to this. I know, um, right? <laughs> and the little potato crunchies are really making it. It's got a, such a fascinating texture. I have to say, so far, like this one is... I could see myself getting down on this one. You're liking the pan con lechon better. It's so good. But with the time we have left, because I want to get through this vegan one. You actually have a vegan option for the folks listening in who are like, man, they get to have all the fun. There's also something for the vegans. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, I caved in to the Southern California palate because when I made cookies, they're all like, is it gluten-free? Is it vegan? I'm like, no. Uh, Because I come from, I came from New York, Miami, so very East Coast. It's just like, eat the butter. And uh, (laughs) here, it's like, what? Butter? No. So I made... Um, one of the vendors actually convinced me to do it, and uh, he has he sells uh, these wonderful blue oyster mm. mushrooms. I just wanted to pause for the mmm. It's a solid <laughs> mm, for sure. So that has the same marinade that oh I use gosh. for the pork. It's a citrus, garlic, oregano um, marinade, and I wanted. I wanted the mushrooms to taste like my pork, and I feel like I did it. I you pull these mushrooms and then you uh, roast them, uh, saute them in a Dutch oven with um, 
with with uh with with that uh, marinade, and I think it just comes out great. It, I'm not vegan, and I eat it all the time. Not, I'm not vegan, but if somebody brought me the sandwich and said, "Hey, I didn't know what you wanted. I got you the sandwich," I would not be mad at the sandwich. Yeah, just exactly. Sandwich, That's I'd what still I want. And then you know, I also serve it with vegan cheese, like because you're not vegan. I gave you Swiss cheese, and I give people that option. But right. I also do it with the vegan cheese, and that's the only thing that makes it taste like a little bit fake. But well, it's still pretty good. I, I'm not getting fake. It's hard to do cheese for the vegan. So now I got about 20 seconds left, but I want to try yes. these two cookies because you started with cookies, actually. You got yes. a guava chocolate chip, a toffee chocolate chip. In just about 20 seconds, can you tell me the origin story of guava chocolate chip while I eat a guava chocolate chip? Yes. So I, I started these cookies in New York 20 years ago, and I, I still made them for my family and friends. Whoa. And when I was selling them here, I wanted to do something that was culturally uh, um uh, you know, accurate, and I was. Mm. I started with the dulce de leche one, and that was just too messy. And then I thought, Ooh, what about guava and chocolate? And nobody's ever done it, and we did it. I'm surprised nobody's ever done it. It works so well. Uh, let me just reintroduce you, Paolo Andino, chef and owner of El Sandwich Cubano. Somebody asked on Instagram where you can find it. Uh, you can find him at the West Hollywood, Westwood, Marina Del Rey, downtown LA Farmers Markets. Paolo, tomorrow at Marina. Tomorrow yeah. at Marina. Yes. Paolo, thank you so much. Oh my for God. This is like, it's like <laughs> being on Oprah for me. I love this. <laughs> Oprah. Incredible. Um, this is Hair Talk. I'm Austin Cross on a food Friday, a delicious food Friday. Thanks so much for hanging with us through a great show today. Film Week with Larry is up next. Have a great weekend, everybody. It's Film Week on L.A. is 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us for another major week in films. Joined by Claudia Puig, Program Director for the Santa Barbara International Film Festival, and Leia Lowenstein joining us as well. Let's get right into this week's movies, beginning with the Japanese thriller Monster. The film stars Sakura Ando and Aita Nagayama. The film is directed by Hirokazu Koreeda. It's written by Yuji Sakamoto. Claudia, what do you think of Monster? I really love this film. Um, I'm also I'm a fan of, of Koreeda, as so many of us are. Um, I feel like it poetically shows the power of perspective. Um, it's so well observed. It's so nuanced. It's very compassionately told. It's also very singular and meticulous in the way he tells the story from these disparate shifting perspectives, like a Rashomon kind of thing. Um, and you won't really know where it's going until the very end. Um, so the best thing is to just kind of let it unfold and not try too hard to piece it together. Um, it's interesting because he took some geographic detours. You know, he, his last film was set in South Korea, which was Broker. And then the film before that was The Truth, which was set in France. Now he's back to his native Japan, as he was with Shoplifters, which uh, is one of my favorites. And I feel this is his best movie since Shoplifters. Wow. Um, it's very moving. And I found it really unusually constructed. He works so well with children, too. Um, and you know, it's, uh, the children in this are amazing. Um, he kind of has, they, it shows that they have their own world of fantasy and adventure. And it's like, we don't really know what our kids are thinking or doing necessarily, even though we may think we do. And he tells us in a very lyrical way, um, you know, the mother, the you know, teacher, the school principal, friends, everybody kind of sees things slightly differently. And bullying is at the center of this. Yeah, but it sounds like it's more. It's than a lot that. more than lot that. More. Yeah, yes. it, yeah. It's, it actually starts with the a child is sort of acting differently, and a fifth grader, <clears throat> and the uh, the the mother thinks that there's something amiss, and th- through little signs she 
deduces or concludes or infers that he has been uh, harassed by the teacher at his school. And there's a few more incidents where he's acting strangely and including one where it seems like he's been you know, possibly struck by the teacher. And so the mother marches in and confronts the principal and says, we must, we, you know, we must resolve this. The teacher must be fired. And then the, te- the principal, the teacher comes in and, you know, the, 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 um, the people at the school act very strange about it. They say, well, we take your your concern with great seriousness. And they, you know, they sort of deflect the mother's concerns. And then, you know, then we sort of get the story from the teacher's perspective and we see things a different way. And then we get the story from the children's perspective and we see things a different way. And what's interesting is that your understanding of the film as an audience member shifts with the layering and changing of each perspective. And and Corey Ada handles this quite masterfully. It's it's a challenging film to watch because you don't you only see a portion of things at a time. At a time. Yeah. And so it's it's kind of like a Rashomon, but it's also not like a Rashomon yeah. because you're you're piecing it together. You never really get the whole you the whole is sort of assembled in your head at the end and you understand things that you didn't know and you actually then understand something that's very important to what the film is truly saying. Well, and that sounds like social commentary in and of itself, because, well, sure. of course, mm-hmm. we're so so quick in our social media era to make judgments about yes. things with which we have only very limited yes. knowledge. Superficial that's right, knowledge. Larry. Yeah. Yeah. And it also begs the question, who and what is the actual monster Truth. of the right. title? Right. Because at one point you think, it's oh, it's the teacher. The teacher is definitely the monster in this film. And then, and then later you think, well, well gosh, maybe it's the mother. Maybe Maybe the parent is because these parents, these single moms are really, you know, they're quite difficult to deal with. And then, you know, and then you think, well, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's the maybe it's someone else's father or, you know, some other just maybe it's society. Maybe it's what we don't know. Maybe it's the way we perceive and judge. And, you know, and it's 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 sort of like this. So this, layered. Yeah. There's. Yeah. It's, well, we know you're not one of those difficult mothers. <laughs> I probably am. Larry. I probably, probably am. Um, but uh, but I thought this was a really extraordinary film. It's Definitely. You know, I, I admired it very much, and I think it gives you. It's the film that gave me the most to think about. One of the one of the films that gave me the most to think about this year. I'm not sure it's one of my f- absolute favorites, but it's the one that will leave me thinking for a long time. And the one that makes you want to see it a second time. Yes, because I'm you'll, actually you'll doing see different a Q and A with with uh, director Correa on Monday night at the New Art. And I'm really anxious to see it yeah. again because I saw it at, at TIFF um, and. It does need to be seen on a big screen. It's beautiful. Also, the music. It's the last work of the very acclaimed composer, Ryuchi Sakamoto. Oh, wow. So, yeah, he, he died two months before the Cannes premiere. We're talking about the Japanese thriller Monster uh, from Hurakazu. Uh, Koreeda, the film's rated PG-13, and you can see it at Landmark's New Art Theater in West L.A. and in Monterey Park at the AMC Atlantic Times Square. Shada, uh, an Iranian film that's written and directed by Noura Niasari. Uh, the film's rated PG-13. Uh, Leo, please uh, share with us. Actually, it's set in Australia yes. and features uh, an Iranian mother. Right. So it's it is set in Australia, and it's it's um, kind of inspired for us from some personal experiences of the filmmaker Nora. Niasari, and this is her debut feature, which is really quite remarkable because it's a very strong film. It features a, a, a spectacular performance by Zara Amir Ebrahimi as uh, a woman who is recently separated from her husband. She's taking refuge in a woman's shelter. They have moved, she and her husband and her family moved to Australia 
for his his studies, his doctoral studies, I guess. And um, th- it was there that that we learned pretty quickly that she was in an abusive relationship, and she left him, s- seeks refuge in this women's shelter, and we learned sort of piece by piece just sort of how awful her marriage was and how each decision that she makes to sort of define herself as a woman whether to cut her hair to to not wear a hijab to 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 possibly even consider dating again each of those is a great affront to the to the Iranian tradition to the to the masculinity of, of her husband and so forth and he talks about at one point we do see him he he comes back as a in visitations with the daughter and you know he's threatening like if we go back to Iran you will be killed for this you know and it's really it's quite powerful quite triggering if you're someone who has who has experienced any of this sort of thing at all it's it's quite Quite well done, beautifully acted, and and it really um, has tremendous performances all the way. Well, around. and and the fact that the writer director this is inspired by her experience, mm. her childhood experience, probably brings all the more power yeah. to it. It does feel as, so real. As well, we're talking about yeah. Shada. What did you think? Yeah, Claudia? she is Iranian Australian. The uh, uh, the director, I, I loved it. I think you know, given that this is this is one of the most masterful uh, debuts, I think of, of a filmmaker that I've seen in a very long time. Kate Blanchett is actually one of the executive producers um, uh, and I think the Australian connection maybe happened there it's a tr- hopefully her name will help will you know inspire people to go see this terrific film um, it's mesmerizing it's occasionally harrowing um, and it, it's the performance of um, Zaramir Ibrahimi, who, by the way, won the, the Cannes uh, Best Actor Award last year for Holy Spider, which was a great film, is just fantastic. Her, you see so much in her eyes. She communicates so mm. much. And, um, you know, the, what we find out is that the Iranian community in Australia is a very small insular community. So yeah. she tries to go out and she's trying to keep normalcy for her six-year-old daughter, who's just adorable. That little girl is a really wonderful mm. little actor, too. And... Um, by doing that, you know, by finding the foods that she likes to have, by celebrating the new year, and she goes to a market, she goes, she cuts her hair, she wears sunglasses, she wears a hat, thinking she won't be recognized, and of course, somebody behind the counter says, oh, you have a nice haircut or something, yeah. and they recognize her. Right her. Yeah, mm-hmm. but the very, it, it grabs you in from the very beginning, she's at the airport with her daughter, and they're they're tense, they're nervous, and you, you know, you think, are they missing a flight, what's going on, are they fleeing? And the reason they're there is to is so the little girl will know uh, what to do in case her father abducts her. And so you're immediately taken in right there. And then, of course, they go to the shelter and there's women from all over the world. And you realize as much as this is a very specific story about, you know, an Iranian immigrant, it's also a very universal story. Yes. And so it, it strikes on all those levels. It's and just, there's other women at the shelter, too, who have their own stories. Yes. And that's really interesting. Very powerful we, stories. Learn about them, too. Yeah. Nia Sari is doing a trilogy of films about Iranian women, Ah. and this is the first of them. She's got another one coming out, uh, I think, next year called Raya. Um, But but she's a really interesting filmmaker. She really is, and especially with everything going on with women in Iran right now. This is she's someone to really absolutely. She so sensitively covers this, and she creates the tension so well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the film is in English and uh, Persian, which is uh, subtitled as well. The film, written and directed by Nora Niasari, Shada is at Lemley's Royal Theater in West Los Angeles, rated PG-13. 
Eileen set in Massachusetts, winter 1964. Thomas and Mackenzie and Anne Hathaway star William Oldroyd is the director and Luke Goebel, the screenwriter of Eileen. Claudia? Well, this is a pretty captivating, unsettling, and kind of noirish psychological thriller. It it attempts to delve into the psyches of these complicated women, but ultimately it doesn't go that much beyond the surface, which I found disappointing. Um, it has the feel of a Hitchcock movie. It has kind of the look of it. It's moody. It's beguiling. But it doesn't fully deliver on its promise for me. I felt the ending kind of disappointed. And I've never actually thought this, I I think, or at least I can't remember the last time I thought this, but I kind of wish it was longer, (laughs) Um, which is this time of year. What what must that feel like? (laughs) I feel like I spoke heresy just now. Yeah, We never feel that way. Never. My hand's blowing up. I know, right? Um, it's, It's 97 minutes, but it just kind of ends in a rather hurried way. Like you feel like there's an extra maybe... 15, 20 minutes that would have, that maybe was left out almost. Um, you know, not to to denigrate other aspects of it, the cinematography is stunning. And the two lead performances are amazing. Anne Hathaway as this glamorous femme fatale who's also kind of slyly funny. She comes into this prison as a psychologist, way too glamorous for this job. I think she should have had a whole different kind of job. But And then Thompson McKenzie, who is wonderful, is this kind of more innocent 24-year-old. They're working at this men's prison. It's very, and it's a kind of depressing depressed New England town. Um, and her father is this also depressed and nasty former police chief. It's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's a very particular setting, very drab. And then this beautiful glamorous woman comes in and, and then you start getting the sense that there's a attraction between the two of them. Um, and so it starts, it starts to feel a little bit like Carol. It does remind you of Carol. Yeah. 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 And then it, it goes a whole and different then it, direction. It takes, <laughs> it takes a real turn, a sharp, yeah. almost like a hairpin turn. Mm-hmm. It, um, and and that is intriguing. It it works kind of in a way. I mean, the the Oldroyd, the director, who who was very good at certain things. He did he got a great performance out of Florence Pugh with Lady Macbeth. He was so yes. good with that. Um, he not that he, it's hard to get a good performance. No, well, out of no, Florence. that's <laughs> excellent, excellent point. So he's particularly good with I think Anne, Anne Hathaway here, who is relishing. She's just like loving every moment of this sort of almost like a Barbara Stanwyck kind of femme fatale and this blonde kind wig. Of Marilyn Monroe hair. A bit, a bit yeah. Marilyn Monroe also. She's got a lot going on. And she's this sort of older, worldly woman. And she comes in as the as the psychiatrist. And, of course, Thompson McKenzie is immediately smitten with her. And, um, you know, she's cool. She dresses well. And everything up to that point has been very drab. Uh, Thomas and Eileen, her the, her the way she dresses, the sets, everything very drab, and then and then Anne Hathaway comes in with this red car, right? And it's just she and just peroxide of, blonde hair, just, yes, yeah, yes, flat peroxide hair. Yeah. And it's suddenly like color has come in <laughs> to this to this drab um, situation, and so she's quite taken with her, right? And then you know, but things turn out to be more complicated than than we assume they're going to be, and you know, it's we can't of course give away too much. That no. would not be fair. <laughs> the film but it is a but, thriller yes yes, yes. gotta but, keep us thrilled but it does <laughs> right. you know it's once that turn happens you're kind of like huh didn't see that coming and then and then you're like okay well i maybe i can go with this and then it's and then you sort of still don't know what's going to happen and even the ending it leaves a lot of questions it does I, think. I feel like it didn't really connect the dots or it did it so hurriedly that you're kind of like what what happened there? Yeah, yeah, I was a little bit unsatisfied by the ending as well. Like I felt like, and and maybe that was deliberate ambiguity, mm-hmm. but I I felt like it could have given me a little bit more. I suppose. I mean, what 
Yeah. All right. Eileen is the film. William Oldroyd, the director, stars Thomason McKenzie and Anne Hathaway. It's rated R. It's at AMC's The Grove 14 and AMC's Century City 15. It opens in wider release next Friday. Next up, a documentary from longtime filmmaker Frederick Wiseman. Menu Plaisir tells the story of the three-star French Michelin restaurant Trois Gros. We'll hear all about that, starting with Lael. So Wiseman is legendary, of course, and in, I don't know, 40, 50-some years of filmmaking. He's 93 now, so gosh, he's been doing this for, what, 60 years? He has taken on institutions of all kinds. Here he takes on the three-star Michelin restaurant, and it is epic. We'll hear more what Lael has to say, as well as Claudia. We're talking about documentarian Frederick Wiseman's new film, Manus Placier. We'll hear more about that when we come back on Film Week in just one minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at Theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. In case you missed what our critics had to say about the Japanese thriller Monster, you're going to want to hear it. Make sure you listen to the full hour of Film Week wherever you get your podcasts or at LAS.com. We continue, though, with uh, the film from documentarian Frederick Wiseman that highlights a three-star Michelin restaurant in France. The film is Menu Placer, and uh, Lael was just telling us about it. So, Lael, this is like behind the scenes totally in this classic restaurant? Yes, and so... Uh, Weissman is kind of legendary for like embedding himself in with these institutions, whatever he chooses, whether it's a library, a city hall, uh, um, a hospital. He he just basically it's a very direct cinema style where he plants himself and he lets his camera run. That is not to say that he doesn't make a lot of artistic choices. He does. But to watch any Weissman film, you have to have a fair amount of patience. And this is a four hour film. Uh, so just be warned about which that. Is which is typical for him. Yes. Right. Yeah. They're they're often three or more hours long, um, but but they are fascinating. And in in this case, he follows the uh, establishment of this this three star this legendary three star Michelin restaurant that has been in the same family for three or four generations, and it is uh, was founded by I believe one of the inventors of Nouvelle Cuisine. 
in France. And, um, and so the meticulousness that goes into planning every meal is detailed with equally meticulous uh, precision by Weissman. And it just, it's kind of extraordinary to watch. The film opens with um, the one of the proprietors shopping at a farmer's market and then goes back to, to observe him in a conversation with his father, planning out the tasting menu for the upcoming week or so at the restaurant. And, and you know, the debate about whether to wrap a stalk of asparagus in rhubarb and then to apply which which kind of sauce you know or not is it's like it it seems like it would be <laughs> dull but it's actually quite fascinating because for the, four part- hours. <laughs> the participants take such delight and care in pouring over every detail and so you know he so Weissman shifts his his camera position you know he's 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 in the kitchen at different times he's in the restaurant at different times he's with the sommelier talking about the different wine selections and you know there's there's editing choices that are made even though the camera is running you see certain segments for certain amounts of time and then he'll go to something else Claudia, so, what did yeah. you think? Yeah, same. I, I, you know, the debate versus should you use elderberry in the sauce versus black currant? Right. You know, it's just like, <laughs> hmm, to me, they're berries. Um, it's like with the precision of generals planning this tactical attack, you right. know, <laughs> or strike. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's amazing. And, and I mean, the, all the effort, all the aspects involved in putting together these mm-hmm. mouthwatering dishes, you know, from where you place the fork and even where you place right. the seats. And then you think people just sit down and plop on those chairs and, you know, eat the food, <laughs> gobble it up without, you know, all that meticulous detail, the tiniest dash of spice. Even, even down to who is coming and what they will eat. They plan yes. for each individual diner. They know their allergies. They yes. know their food sensitivities. And, and even what they and like and dislike. And dislike. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's not just like, you know, you do go to nice restaurants and they ask you if you have any food allergies, but this is so much beyond that. Um, and it's just, uh, you know, that when he first goes to a farmer's market and he's going over everything, and then of course they're in the countryside where they're growing some of their own um, vegetables and, and uh, spices and things like that, herbs. But, you know, they, they also visit, I think it was a goat herd to talk mm-hmm. about, you know, the lactation process yes, of goats. Whole, yeah, we learn all about that. <laughs> yeah. We visit with um, someone who raises cattle yeah. for, um, for, you know, for for. for use in the restaurant, you know, that's... And does the chef, Michel uh, Troigreau, go out and do all this himself? Well, his son is kind of taking... His two sons, actually. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a, it's like a well-oiled machine. There's a lot of people So involved. they split the responsibility. Yes. There are going many, out. many, yes. many, many And they chefs. all do their jobs so meticulously yeah. and perfectly. It's, it is like a, like a precision clock or something. Yes. It's so amazing. And if you're a fan of films about cooking, uh, I'm a huge fan of like Big Night, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, yeah. or all the myriad cooking shows that are on Even TV. Even the bear that's on. Yes. The bear, right. exactly. Right, much more recently. Yeah, or, you know, the baking shows. This is the king of them all. Yes, <laughs> it is. And, and you learn, I mean, even though he doesn't explain everything that's being cooked. We learn just by observing. Yes. And, you know, it's it's really remarkable what you can do. And not even on a gas stove. Most of them are cooking on electric electric as well. Yes. So that was really interesting. And chopping on, th- on things Chop- that are not necessarily like chopping blocks. They're right. just doing it on a counter. And, right. And their yeah. technique is so specialized and refined. And even the patience that, that uh, Michelle and Care takes when, when a, a younger chef doesn't do something quite right. He doesn't read him. He doesn't yell at him. He it's just not says, like well, the bear there. Yeah, not like the bear there. He just says, well, you'll get it right next time. You know, really interesting. We, we should mention that Frederick Wiseman is 93 years old. Yes. And still, and he's still at it. Making films. Yes. Yeah. It's and, amazing. 
He's been living in France, I think, for a while now, and this is just, you know, he's he's got this real interest in in exploring different kinds of things related to French culture as well, so really interesting. We're talking about Menu Placer, which tells the story of the three Michelin star restaurant Le Trois Gros uh, in France. Frederick Wiseman, the director. The film's unrated, and you can see it at Lemley's Royal in West Los Angeles. Big week for documentaries, and that continues with a look at filmmaker Werner Herzog. Werner Herzog, Radical Dreamer, is directed by Thomas von Steinecker. Uh, Claudia, what do you think of it? Well, after talking about um, Frederick Wiseman at 93, uh, Werner Herzog is a youthful 81. Just a lad. Yeah. <laughs> Strapping young lad. I love this film. I programmed it, actually, for Santa Barbara last year. Um, and, you know... He any any fan of his films, whether the narrative films or the documentary films, you're going to enjoy this. And even if you just know him from pop culture, like The Simpsons, or you know, he had I think a voice in Penguins of Madagascar, you're going to you will appreciate his distinctive pronouncements and his eccentric anecdotes. He's such an icon. He's he's so entertaining. So entertaining. And you know, Vim Vendors at one point says he made up that accent. It's not really? just a regular German accent. <laughs> yeah. And you see him in his youth um, and you can see where that's building up. But his anecdotes are so priceless. Um, and of course, his way of speaking is so singular. Um, and, and then they have all these interviews with really interesting people who've either worked with him or admired him. Chloe Zhao, Patti Smith, Robert Pattinson, uh, Nicole Kidman, Christian Bale, and then his wife and his brother, and then other great filmmakers like Vim Vendors and Volker Schlondorf and Joshua Oppenheim. Um, you know, and he says things like, I just tried to remain a good soldier of cinema. It's a terrible accent. Sorry. Um, <laughs> and my favorite line, which I was like, I was texting Leo last night with this line about it is a crime that we do not, that humans do not have wings. Right. <laughs> One of the things I love is he's he's sort of in the tradition of the director who's the great rock and tour and personality. Yes. Like Hitchcock was that way. He had yes. this whole persona. He, Alfred Hitchcock was a character as well as a great filmmaker and Herzog is a terrific filmmaker he very is. you know highly varied in the work that he does but just a galvanizing personality totally Christian Bale says something like he makes himself a target for unlikely events because he wants that he wants a fascinating life and that'll come your way if you want that and it's like I don't know if that really comes your way if you want it but he certainly has had a fascinating life Leo, what do you think of this I, documentary oh I really loved it I I enjoy Herzog so much and he's made some films that I really really like Grizzly Man being one of my, oh my favorite gosh, documentaries. Yeah. I remember he was here to talk with you, yes, Larry, at yeah. that time. And um and Claudia and I got to meet him. We were reminiscing, we were, yeah. 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 And um and he's just he's so you know, magnetic. Like he's, you just, you just want to listen to him for hours and hours. He is a raconteur. He's funny, but he's also quite driven, and I think a little bit tortured, maybe even. And you get that when he's talking about all of his films, and that comes through when he's talking about Fitzcarraldo and having to figure out how to drag a boat up a, a mountain. mountain or working with Klaus Kinski on a gear. My Best Fiend, wasn't that the documentary? Yes, that? My yes. Best so Fiend about, about, about yeah. working with Kinski and yeah. how they almost killed each other. I mean, it was really very dark between the two of them. But it's he's he's such a great storyteller and he's he's always alive and kind of like you're just you're fascinating you're fascinated by his story and what drives him as an artist and the fact that he is still driven as well like I think this this whole thing of you know he is in a way what he's directing like 
his yes. his stories are so often about these people with these singular visions, and that is something that I think that you get from him is that he is very driven to complete the singular vision. He goes back to his hometown in Germany, which is a really pretty idyllic place, but mm. he didn't have a very idyllic life. His father wasn't there, um, and he actually liked. It. He said it was anarchy in the best sense. There were no mm. rules because we didn't have a father there, but they had food instability. But he goes back to this waterfall that mm. really had a place in his. And yeah, and he's just like the waterfall is me, and his, his love for the natural world and his admiration and his. I mean, that comes through loud and clear. Oh, he Remember the documentary on the caves in the France? The Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Yes. 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 Or Antarctica. The one with, that was a fascinating one. And he has this wonderful line about the waterfall that the we are the waterfall, that as you leave the cliff, we start, we're all like in a river, and then you leave the cliff. And the distance between the time when the water leaves the cliff and when it hits the ground is each of our individual lives. And then we come together in this stream at the end. Yeah. It's quite He's beautiful. very poetic. Yeah. yeah. We're talking about Werner Herzog, Radical Dream the new biographical documentary on Herzog by Thomas von Steinecker. You can see it on demand starting next Tuesday. Also out this week, Waitress the Musical, which actually I should say is in theaters for one day next Thursday the 7th, and it was filmed during Waitress the Musical's Broadway limited return in September of 2021. And uh, this is, is the musical that was made based on the film that the late Adrian Shelley wrote. Claudia, what did you think of, of this treatment of Waitress the Musical? I liked it. I was a big fan of the movie. I know it's it's a pretty slight story, but I thought it was really beautifully told and, and you know, well acted. This is so I think this sweet story lends itself really nicely to a musical. Um and the music is very good. The one song that's, you know, incredibly memorable memorable is She Used to Be Mine. It's a beautiful song. It feels a little long for a movie. I think it's like two hours and twenty minutes. Um, but that's of course very normal for a play. Mm-hmm. Um and, and the characters feel sometimes a little stereotypical and theatrical for obvious reasons. It's a piece of theater. Um, But what I really appreciated was that the director, Brett Sullivan, got his camera directly into the action so that you you picked, you you got, he circled around, you know, during the musical numbers. And so you got the vibrancy. He captured that. Um, And then the key performance by Sarah Bareilles. um, Her bond with the two other waitresses, Charity Dawson and Caitlin Houlihan, was, I think, one of the main reasons to see it. Now, this was the role, was it Carrie Russell played it in the film version? Yes, it was Carrie Russell. Non-musical. Yes, which I love. I love the Carrie Russell-Nathan Fillion connection, and I love their chemistry. I I don't think these these two had as much chemistry, but it was, you know, uh, they've inserted some lines, they've added some things. But it's it made me really wish I'd seen this on stage, unfortunately. But it's a great story about love, about friendship, about female empowerment, about motherhood. And I think it's a really lovely tribute to Adrian Shelley, who, you know, was tragically killed and, and died, yeah. you know, way too young. Um, I I think it's, you know, it's worth seeing, but I do think you have to be a fan of the original film, which I was. Waitress the Musical, as Claudia just said, uh, starring Sarah Bareilles, the film portion of it, the film stage production, is uh, Brett Sullivan at the camera. Uh, Diane Paulus was the one who did the stage production that's on Broadway. The film is unrated. Again, it's in theaters one day only, which is next Thursday, December 7th. And we also want to mention there's been a 4K digital restoration upon the 20th anniversary of The Wild Parrots of Telegraph Hill. Hard to believe that documentary came out 20 years ago, (laughs) which follows uh, the 
life of Mark Bittner, uh, an unemployed um, aging guy in San Francisco who develops quite a, a relationship with the wild parrots and, and people's interactions with him that center on the birds. Lael, I have fond memories of this film. You know, I never saw this film, Larry, and I, although I'm from San Francisco, I, I can't believe I never saw it, and uh, I was actually so glad I got to see it for this. I so enjoyed it. So it's a it's a very weird film. You start out thinking this guy is a total kook. He's someone who's basically been more or less homeless for a decade or so. He's kind of a squ- squatting in this little guest house. He develops a relationship with this flock of parrots and and teaches himself everything about them. He becomes like the inarguable expert on these on these birds, these uh, cherry-headed conyers, these parakeets, and 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 blue-crowned conyers, these these amazing green parrots. And people come, people sort of hear about him, and he's written books and so forth. And they come by to look at him and and watch him talk to the birds and and feed the birds, and they think he's very peculiar. But little by little. What we learn is that he is probably the sanest person that is in the film or that, you know, you'll ever meet. Like, he talks about the birds. He does admit that he anthropomorphizes them to some extent. Like, he gives them, sort of imbues them with personalities and characteristics. But then you see this footage, some of which he has shot and some of which is shot by the director, Judy Irving, that bears out everything he says. So you sort of can't disagree with him. And there's also a lovely journey that happens in the course of the film that I won't give away, but it's a wonderful ending. And it's just a touching, revealing, uplifting, lovely film. The Wild Parrots of Telegraph Hill, fully restored 4K version, 20th anniversary. Rated G, Judy Irving, the director. You can see it at Lemley's Glendale Theater in Glendale. Coming up on Film Week, we'll talk with Jeremy Arnold. There's a new revised edition of the TCM Christmas Movies book. We'll talk about it momentarily. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Film Week on L.A. is 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. We turn our attention now to the best of holiday films and just out a revised and expanded edition of TCM's Christmas in the Movies. The book uh, written by Jeremy Arnold, full of beautiful color photographs of some of these classic films and others far more obscure. But let's begin by getting in the mood, listening to this scene from the classic uh, film, It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey talking to Mary Hatch Bailey about what she wants from him. What is it you want, Mary? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Hey, that's a pretty good idea. 
I'll give you the moon, Mary. I'll take it. Then what? Well, then you could swallow it. And it all dissolves, see? And the moonbeams that shoot out of your fingers and your toes and the ends of your hair. Am I talking too much? Yes. Why don't you kiss her instead of talking to death? <laughs> Such a classic scene from that great film. It's a wonderful life. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for joining us to talk about that film, of course, one of our most enduring classics shown on television every year. But what attracted you to doing the book and exposing us to some of the lesser-known holiday films? First, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I think what attracted me to the lesser-known films was really in the way that doing this book was an exploration for me to answer the question, what is a Christmas movie? Mm -hmm. Because it seems like every year we we love to debate whether certain films are or aren't Christmas movies. Yeah, like Die Hard. Is Die Hard a Christmas film? Yes. And yes. Oh, yes. It's one of the best. Uh, (laughs) But I think that those debates are really over competing definitions of the term. Everyone defines Christmas movie differently because Christmas movies were not historically a genre. And, you know, no one in the 40s ever said, I'm making a Christmas movie. The label came (laughs) later. uh, And so it it has arguably become sort of a genre. Now studios are making, quote unquote, Christmas movies. But um, at the time, that wasn't so. And yet there are all these classic films that incorporate Christmas to pretty large degrees. And so the bottom line is the definition I came up with was any movie of any genre in which some aspect of the holiday season plays a meaningful role in the storytelling. Not just incidental, but is meaningful central part of the film. Yeah, and just not not just a backdrop. And it doesn't mean the movie has to be quote unquote about Christmas. It has to have it has to be tied directly linked to some recognized meaning of the season. And the season can mean many different things from joy and family togetherness and positive transformation, love and compassion, but it can also mean loneliness and cynicism, alienation, uh, maybe a disgust with the commercialism or the saccharine nature of the season. I think we all experience all of those things to some degree. Uh, and so it's uh, all of those are fodder for all sorts of Christmas movies. Yeah, Jeremy, one of the things I find interesting is that you know some of these films, when they were initially released, um, It's a Wonderful Life, a prime example, the one we're going to hear a clip from uh, in a moment, were nowhere near the phenomenons that they became after being exposed to television viewers. I want to ask you about that, but let's listen to this classic scene from A Christmas Story. What do you want for Christmas, little boy? My mind had gone blank. Frantically, I tried to remember what it was I wanted. I was blowing it, blowing it. Come on, kid. How about a nice uh, football? 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 What's a football? (laughs) Without conscious will, my voice squeaked out. Football? Okay, get him out of here. A football? Oh, no! What was I doing? Wake up, stupid! Wake up! The trip to Santa not ending as uh, as he wanted. But, you know, that's another example, Jeremy, of a film that, you know, it's played, I think, on uh, uh, TBS, isn't it, all day, 24 hours around Christmas. So what's led some of these films to being now, you know, considered classics when they weren't upon release? Well, I really think that television 
it might be the genesis of the term Christmas movie because when It's a Wonderful Life was in the public domain for 20 years or so in the 70s and 80s, it was on every local television station in every city across the country from Thanksgiving to Christmas practically 24-7. At least that's what it felt like. Mm -hmm. And that is how the movie got rediscovered, really, and became linked to viewing every year during the holiday season. And I think that helped that very concept sort of come into being. The same thing happened with A Christmas Story, which uh, the year it opened, it opened around Thanksgiving, and it was pretty much out of theaters by Christmas. It had been elbowed aside by bigger films, didn't do particularly well theatrically. But then, years later, it was rediscovered on, on television, and now it became a juggernaut, like It's Wonderful Life. Tell us about Miracle on Main Street, this film not well-known, uh, from 1939, obviously a great year for American film, but what stands out on Miracle on Main Street? Well, this is one of the most obscure films in the book, and I'm very happy to say that Turner Classic Movies will be broadcasting it for the very first time this December, so I'm excited that yeah. it will be seen. Uh, this is a Poverty Row B-movie, uh, made at Grand National Films, which went, <laughs> went out of business before the film was even released and the producer had to uh, entice Columbia to step in and release it. Uh, the producer was Jack Skirball, who later became a very prominent philanthropist. Uh, and the story is basically about a stripper and her shady husband in L.A. who try and fleece a an undercover policeman on Christmas Eve. They get caught. She goes on the run. She takes refuge in a church, finds an abandoned baby. And this, the film is then about her uh, transforming uh, and becoming a better person as she decides to keep the baby and raise it. And then that leads to all sorts of other plot issues. But the the point is that the the movie very clearly links Christmas time to the idea that she could transform into a better person, into a better version of herself, you know, which I call the Scrooge-like effect, because Scrooge is the ultimate of that, and really the original example of that. But almost every Christmas movie has at least one Scrooge-like transformation in it. We're talking about uh, Jeremy's new book, Christmas in the Movies, now revised and expanded. 35 films that are included in Jeremy Arnold's book, uh, done in conjunction with Turner Classic Movies. It's got all those uh, classic Christmas films, but some other gems that you might not be familiar with, such as Miracle on Main Street from 1939. Tell us about The Cheaters from 1945. Well, this is another B-movie from uh, uh, Republic Studios. Now, this is a rather unusual film for them because, first of all, it's it's about an hour and a half, which is long for a Republic B. Uh, and it was made on a higher budget than usual. It was made to celebrate the studio's 10th anniversary. But it's a cast entirely of character actors, no major stars. And this is about an entire family of Scrooges <laughs> or Grinches, and they all transform after trying to basically uh, uh, chisel the, the, this uh, this young actress who has been named as the person to inherit the estate of their relative, they try and keep this from her so they can inherit the money themselves. And as the film goes on, they start to soften and transform. And uh, they, they bring in a washed-up actor, a sort of a charity case, and he helps them see the error of their ways. So what's really interesting about this film is that 
uh, towards the end, this washed-up actor they've taken in, played by Joseph Schildkraut, he, in order to teach them a lesson, to teach them the error of their ways, he basically recounts the Dickens story of A Christmas Carol. Uh, he, he doesn't read it. He just tells them the story of what it is. And that has almost the same effect as watching or reading A Christmas Carol in the world of this movie. Uh, it really shows the power of Dickens to, as I say, transform characters. We're talking about the film The Cheaters from 1945, uh, the film from Republic Pictures. Is this one, do you know, that's in Turner uh, classic movies archives? Yes, and I, I it will also be shown this year. It, it's a little hard to find otherwise, but it, it's out there. All right. We'll continue our conversation with Jeremy Arnold, uh, author of the newly revised and expanded edition of TCM Christmas in the Movies, 35 classics to celebrate the season. When we come back, we'll hear about some of these other gems that Jeremy identifies that we probably haven't heard of before. Um, how is Trail of Robin Hood related to Christmas? We'll find out about that. The Holly and the Ivy, a Cash on Demand, and others. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3, back in one minute. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. We thought this was the perfect week to talk holiday films. And joining us is Jeremy Arnold, author of the newly revised and expanded TCM Christmas in the Movies, 35 classics to celebrate this season. Jeremy, let, let's talk about uh, film noir. We don't think of the genres necessarily being Christmas compatible, but you have a gem in the genre that is Christmas-centric. I do. Uh, usually when Christmas pops up in a film noir, it's simply for ironic or tonal counterpoint. But there's one film that I consider to be a true Christmas movie and a true film noir, and that is uh, a rather underknown 1961 independently made film called Blast of Silence. Now, the reason this is uh, this qualifies as a Christmas movie, it's, it's about an assassin who's sent, uh, sent to New York over Christmas time and has to carry out a hit right after Christmas Day. And the whole, it's really a character study. The film builds this portrait of a very uh, alienated, weary man, very strong influence on Taxi Driver and Scorsese, by the way. Scorsese's often cited this film as an influence. Um, but what it does is the film totally embraces these negative, cynical aspects of the season, the cynical meaning of the season. There's a voiceover in the second person read by Lionel Stander, which is full of lines like, Christmas gives you the creeps. Uh, Christmas is a time for all the suckers. You, you hate Christmas. This is the voice that this character hears inside well, I'm his hearing head. Lionel Stander's voice. <laughs> so for those who are not familiar with him from films, he's a regular on Heart to Heart, the TV series. Yes. He's got very distinct voice. Very distinct. He was in a lot of Frank Capra movies, too, as a character actor. Uh, and so... You know, this film it's, has one of the bleakest, most pessimistic endings in all of film noir. And even in the last minute or so of the film, the voiceover has another reference to Christmas, which just illustrates how the film uses the season and the ideas of the season in a very conscious way to build character and story, just in a negative way, in a cynical way. And uh, that's unusual. The only other movie 
that mines similar territory as Bad Santa, but that but that's a black comedy. It's yeah. not a film noir, so it takes it to comic extremes. This one just takes it to dark, dramatic extremes. Jeremy, let's talk about some of the other films. Beyond Tomorrow from 1940. Beyond Tomorrow is another film. It's been in the public domain for many years, and so it's easy to find uh, online. So it'll be on TCM as well. And this is a really touching story about uh, essentially two young souls in New York City who are brought together on Christmas Eve when three elderly men who are having Christmas together and are lonely because all their friends have died— they basically they they throw their wallets out onto the street with a ten dollar bill and their their address, hoping that good souls will return the wallets and then have Christmas dinner with them. Uh, and because this is a Hollywood movie, <laughs> a, a young attractive male and a young attractive female return two of the wallets and they fall in love. Then the men die in a plane crash and they continue to guide these young lovers as spirits. Uh, and the film actually goes into the afterlife and has some pretty interesting effects showing these ghosts. Uh, it's, it's a little far-fetched. It, was, it got some critical drubbing at the time for that reason. But I think it, it holds up. I, I think Christmas movies uh, can get away with supernatural elements like ghosts and you know gremlins or whatever it may be. Of course, A Christmas Carol is full of ghosts. Uh, there's something about the season that I think allows us to to buy that a little more easily. Beyond Tomorrow, uh, you mentioned about the spirit element of it, and Maria Ospinskaya uh, plays uh, a madam uh, a seer in the film, who, of course, she played roles like that and so many others, including the Wolfman, and yep. was, an, was a noted acting teacher as, as well. So, uh, so many of these films that you're mentioning have wonderful character actor casts. So in, in The Bishop's Wife, for example, there's a character played by Gladys Cooper, who is extremely Grinch-like, and she, uh, there's a really charming scene where, where Cary Grant uh, plays the harp in her living room and basically helps her transform into a softer person, and then that allows the, the bishop to build his cathedral. It's all tied into that. There's also a scene in It Happened on Fifth Avenue where uh, a real character actor named Ed Brophy, who was known for countless comedy roles and hundreds of comedies and gangster films in the 30s and 40s. He plays a cop who comes into this mansion that has been uh, taken over by a bunch of homeless people uh, while the owner is is away for the winter. And, of course, he's he, the first thing he wants to do is throw them out, toss them out, evict them. And they convince him to just let them enjoy their Christmas there. And so there, it's just a brief little scene, but he softens because of Christmas, and it's in a comic, charming, poignant way. We're talking with Jeremy Arnold, author of the TCM book Christmas in the Movies. It's revised and expanded from the edition that was out a few years ago, 35 films, and many of them that Jeremy was not able to include the first time around are included in this expanded edition. And you'll find uh, the old favorites, the ones that we love, um, Miracle on 34th Street, um, Three Godfathers, of course, Scrooge, the 1951 version uh, of A Christmas Carol, White Christmas is here, um, A Christmas Story, but others that you don't necessarily know about that are even hard-to-find films, which he's uh, shared with us uh, so far. Uh, the Lion in Winter, 
great film, incredible acting in that 1968 film. I had thought of that as a Christmas film. I hadn't either before I started researching the book. And I think it is a very strong Christmas film because it's actually the most common type of Christmas movie in a way. It's about the Christmas time gathering of a dysfunctional family. And that is the single most common theme of Christmas movies. It just so happens that it's the 12th century, the family is the royal family, uh, the home is a castle in France, and when they talk about how they want to kill each other, unlike the rest of us, they mean it literally. They actually <laughs> could. And so it, it takes this, and it's full of references to Christmas time. It even has a Christmas tree and presents being exchanged, which is ahistorical to the year 1183 in France that would not have happened then. But uh, it, it just helps make it a more modern film, really. The apartment you have is a Christmas film as well. Yes. Uh, this is another film that sort of uses Christmas in its cynical, lonely uh, guise. Uh, you know, loneliness is a big part of the apartment. Uh, Jack Lemon and Shirley MacLaine, you really get the sense that they're two lonely souls in a really... Uh, inhospitable, almost inhumane environment of New York in 1960. And in the course of the film, they find each other and finally are honest with each other and open up and they end up together. And on Christmas Eve, though, there's a scene where Shirley MacLaine tries to commit suicide and Jack Lemmon saves her. Mm -hmm. And that is the point at which their relationship turns around and starts to really develop into something. And you know, it's interesting. I found that uh, suicide pops up quite a bit in Christmas films. There are four films that I know of that have either attempted or contemplated suicide. And I think that speaks to, again, this idea that Christmas can be a lonely, despairing yeah. time. And what is the ultimate dramatic end of that? Well, it's probably suicide. So as a dramatist's tool, it's it's useful to explore the theme of loneliness, if that's what it is in the film. And uh, the apartment certainly does that. Jeremy, thank you for joining us and talking about your book. We appreciate it so much. Thank you so much. It's TCM's Christmas in the Movies, revised and expanded up to 35 Christmas-themed films. Jeremy Arnold, our guest, thank you so much for joining us for Film Week on LAist 89.3. We'll talk with you again next week. The LAist Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAist.com sweeps.